When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's uh, let's do our alignment. I'm gonna be one. Johnny's gonna be two. Liz three. Tyler four. Going to eight, and then doing a cl- gosh. Hey, why is your ringer on? Spam call. Hello. It's a spam call. We've discussed this before. Why is your ringer on? Because if my ringer's not on, I don't hear the call. That's the point. James, that's the point. <laughs> the point is to not hear is to see. Sometimes James, you if need you hear to get the call, phone the calls. microphone hears the call. We hear the call. for a man that spends all day every day in front of a microphone. You would think <laughs> all day every day. <laughs> oh, it feels that way, doesn't it? The amount of the amount of sleep for the mic just <laughs> it's content. That's content. There's content. Sometimes I talk in my sleep and I don't want to miss it in case we need to do a cold open. (laughs) Damato records the mid rolls in his sleep. It's the only way I have time for them with all the other stuff that I got to do. You could also make the phone go Charles Thompson. Thank you. Thank you. Blake. (laughs) Yeah. And we cut away once more, and we cut away to the town itself, seeing the various crew members of the Uhuru ferrying people who they had gathered onto the ship in case the worst should happen back to their homes. The crew members of the Uhuru, you know, they are still pirates. I don't think most of them are jumping in to help people in town, but they are doing what they can where they can do it. Those who are old or injured somehow during the fight, they are being accompanied by younger and stronger members of the Uhuru. Some are clearing away rubble and debris that has piled up around people's homes where doors have been knocked in or water has battered down parts of these buildings. But mostly this is about the town showing its affection for the Uhuru crew in what they have done. 
They have done something significant here. They have sowed the seed of a story that will grow strong and wrap its way across fear. This is the tale of how the crew of the Uhuru, the crew under Oromar Vale, came from the sky and faced the mariner, faced the rage of the sea, and saved a town. It is a story that will follow this ship like the story of the sinking of the civility, that many people will believe and many people will disbelieve and many people will warp and change throughout time. But it is a story that will continue to be told for as long as light falls upon sphere and people walk on its surface. We see townspeople finishing the last bits of the scrape as Gable tosses children under the ship. Members of the congregation under Adrian come and scrape the last of the skamalic and spray the last of the alcohol needed to burn away so the ship will be able to take to the sky and fly away on this night when they depart. We see members of the town gathering what supplies they can offer to load onto the ship and help it carry itself into the sky. We see townspeople rescuing the injured and the dead that have fallen around this place and offering those who hailed from the Uhuru to the crew itself. We do know that Ryan Lochte and Polly Shore tragically fell in this fight, and their deaths are honored and mourned. Honored and mourned in a way that is different than Dref was honored and mourned. Dref fell unexpectedly. Dref was struck down because he had involuntarily been placed in danger. He was killed in cold blood. These two fell in the service of battle, fell in the service of the ship and its reputation and its beliefs and ideals. They get a hero's funeral, which is brighter and cheerier. It still involves their bodies being burned and offered up to the sails of the ship so that they will join you as the ship moves to a new place. It still involves their names being carved into the heart bell so you will carry their memories with you as you sail on in the sky. But there are fewer tears and more happy stories. The townsfolk and the crew share a last celebratory drink together. Although the bog wine of the festival has been drunk through, there are more drinks in this place and plenty of thirsty mouths waiting for them. As people begin to pack up and say their goodbyes, coming down to the water that has gathered beneath the ship in these massive puddles beside the tarp, we see Nodos approaching Gable, 
who is probably at the end of the thrill and patience that they had to serve these children as a human catapult. Nodo's uh, approaches. Pardon me. Uh, I do not mean to interrupt. Oh, please do. I'm very tired. Throw! Throw! Throw us! Throw us! One. That's it. That's going to be definitely it for ever. You've been saying that for the past hour. Throw us. Come on, you're strong. Uh, Gable takes these two children and hurls them as far as they can go. (laughs) Which... Team Rocket style, they disappear into the sky with a twinkle. (laughs) And no one asks any questions. (laughs) They never come back. (laughs) I think that was the last of them. I first wish to offer you this as congratulations for another victory. And he offers you a fine piece of rope. You read my mind. That's good because you've got some real thinking to do. There's a decision that needs to be made. And I spoke with the captain, but he was insistent that the quartermaster must answer it. So I come to you. To find the quartermaster? Yes, the quartermaster must answer it, which means he would tell me to ask someone else. And as it is an important decision, I came to you. (laughs) Yes. Cutting out the middleman. That's why you're the smartest one that I know. Also, it is a trial that we face because of your good thinking and quick decision making. Uh, So I believe you are more qualified to answer it than Madigo would be. And that is... What must we do with Il Sanguidio? During the fight, the Uhuru captured it. It could be ours. Why is the captain asking? He's been desiring a fleet as long as he's been always alive, as far as I know. (laughs) The captain, I cannot imagine... uh, what goes through the captain's mind uh, when he makes a decision like this, I will say that this could be a strategic decision that the captain believes those who are lower in the ranks of the ship might be better to think through. The captain does desire fleets, and the captain has commanded fleets, but When the captain commands fleets, he does so in partnership with his closest allies. The captain's council would ultimately be shuffling someone off to captain a fleet underneath himself. One of you would likely be in command of Il Sanguidio if we were to bring it in under our ranks, or someone that you choose. The captain might be asking you because you have the best sense of whether or not we currently have the forces to maintain two ships. It would add to the burden of coal that we need to take on as we go to the new port. And there is also, 
if we take a ship from the fleet of the slain god, that will be a new burden the Uhuru carries with it as it enters each port. Right now, we might not be exactly friendly with the church, but they're not outwardly hostile to us because we've given them no course. If we're flying one of their ships, that might suddenly draw their ire. Gable all of a sudden claps Nodos on the shoulder and they say, I have an idea. Hmm? And they run up to (laughs) run up the plank to the ship. Mm-hmm. Where is B? B is probably in the hold of the ship going through along with like Slam and I, I think Toku was was assisting with cooking duties. Basically, they're taking stock of the supplies that are coming aboard the ship and where they should be stored because they'll have to do so as they form a new meal plan for going to the next place. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, I apologize. Uh, um, no, no, no. He's, he's, uh, uh, Gable, uh, come in. You you can see the, the uh, provisions that we have. It's going to be very radish heavy on our way to our next port, but it... it healthy. Yeah. Radishes and cranberries. Radishes and cranberries, yes. Yes. We'll be pissing like champions. I'm sorry. This isn't what I came <laughs> why would, to do. Why did you say um, that? <laughs> it's... Uh, I would like. Not to- a lot of people would would jump straight to piss. <laughs> cranberries, cranberries is that's my brain. I, association. There's an association again. Like I get it. I see it. We, <laughs> I, I see the connection. But you would have had to point it out first for yeah. me to. Did get you there. come but into so. into this room to, to talk, talk about, about piss? piss? No, I did. I didn't do that. <laughs> um, I would like to. Is B may, the wasp? May I? Uh, could I? I speak to you in private. B sort of nervously looks over at Slam and Toku. Do you two feel like you understand what has to be done? Uh, It is clear as a crystal. Toku, are you going to be able to lead through and cheek like kind of gestures to uh, Slam? And Slam goes, what? (laughs) What? We we got I have... We got got this. (laughs) My skills have been tried once today, and I have made it out alive, and I feel confident that I can do it again. With that, the wasp goes, all right, honey, I'll take you up. And she steps to away from them. Like, finding true privacy in the hold of a ship is difficult, but, like, there are boxes and whatnot that you can step behind to speak. And we're still underneath the... Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So Gable gestures B over to a porthole and points out at Il Sanguidio. How long have you been working for the captain? Oh, Ormar and I go way back. I've been here at least 25 years. So you would say, out of everyone on this crew, you probably have the best idea of what our capabilities are. Not what we dream our capabilities are, not what we think we could achieve. You know what we are able to do. I'm starting to get nervous. Don't be. In the vote, you spoke clearly and concisely, expressing an opinion that was 
wholly in service of the survival of the crew. That was your paramount concern. And even I, despite my adoration and care of the crew, you spoke in a way that made me admire you for what you've done for us. The flattery will get you some places, Gable, but I do need to see where you're trying to go. I want you to speak plainly. Can we take on this ship? So realization kind of dawns on her and her face like darkens a little bit as she considers the possibility. Taking on another ship is a big burden. Like I said, I've been flying with Oromar for quite some time, and he has commanded many ships many times in his career. But at the end of the day, all roads led back to the Uhuru. It's fine going out and lording over the Tempest Armada for a little bit, but Oromar usually wants to do things that... Sometimes he's got to do alone. Sometimes take on risks that he doesn't want to put everyone through. Not only that, a ship in of itself is a big responsibility. And it needs to be captained by someone that the captain trusts implicitly. Someone that would follow the captain's orders without the captain being around to give them. Not only that, but the church is everywhere we take one of their ships, we're going to have to fight them. If you want to know what my opinion is, and just my opinion, I think taking on a ship like that is a liability, a risk. However, do I think we could do it? I'm forced to say we could. Because we can. I think I misspoke. I wasn't asking... What would happen if any of us took over the ship? What would happen if you did? Are you telling me that you want me to be captain of another ship in Oromar's fleet? I don't know about want. (sighs) Wasp sits back and looks out the window at that ship and then, like, looks like she grows a little frustrated, looks you up and down, dropping a problem in my lap like this. I ain't gonna wait for you to offer. Give me that rope. <laughs> uh. Gable hands it over. She takes out a, a lighter and sparks it up and looks it over. I would do it. For Oromar, I would do it. If that's what he wants, he wants it for a reason. Even if I do think it's a big damn risk, I'll take on that risk if Oromar's got an idea for it. Last time Ormar started gathering together fleets was around the time that he started doing the Tempest Armada. He's entered a lot of 
temporary alliances in the times that we've flown together, and the Uhuru has flown as part of fleets for this and that, but he only gathered people under his banner when he was doing something really big. I have a feeling One something- thing that worries me, Gable, is I'm worried what y'all would do without me. Oh, we're going to have a real bad time. I'm telling you right now, things are going to go pretty poorly. But there's so many of us. And you're so capable. I would rather see you running a ship the way you really want to. Just out of sheer curiosity of how soon you'll beat us out of the sky. Oh, I didn't realize. Are you talking about breaking off? Having me go somewhere else? If you wanted to. The wasp goes, If y'all are looking to build a fleet and you need a captain who will be capable, I would trust myself to do it. The one thing that I want to know, Gable, is that y'all are going to have a cook step into my shoes. I like Toku, but he's part-time. And Slam is a sweet boy. But Slam's someone that you order around and ain't someone who can put together a menu. Now, unless y'all have picked up someone recently with cooking experience who's got a history of moving from port to port and would understand local eateries and food sources there, I don't think it's possible for me to step away from my duties. (laughs) Wasp, I assure you, depending on how things shake out, we either have or will have found someone absolutely perfect for this position. They are in a quantum state right now. You can have them enter the scene at this point. Just burst out of a crate. That was three yeses for sure. Uh, did somebody call me? Uh. <laughs> Yeah, so the opening from a crate that says donkey sauce. Uh, <laughs> Just liquefied donkey. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh God. Now that's good oh, donkey. No. <laughs> <laughs> I want to cut to the procession of people that that have sort of gathered around the skyport to start seeing off the ship as it's finally time for you to start casting off supplies have been loaded plans have been made and now goodbyes are finally being said and i believe the most important goodbye is between adrian and jonet so I think Jonnet is kind of like cleaned up. He's carrying what he can in like this wicker basket that he relented and allowed like the the people to like give him one wicker basket full of things and there's all kinds of like trinkets and knickknacks in there and um He's kind of holding it with two hands, kind of looking up at the Uhuru, and Adrian is kind of standing next to him. I um, I don't think that we would have been able to come out of this in one piece, 
even close to one piece without you, Adrian. So thank you for for being the 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 person that talks to the town. I talk to you and you talk to them and because of that we made it out. You are Incredibly generous. Exactly what I would hope a prophet would be. Adrian, look, I'm not going to lie to you, all right? He, like, puts down his basket, and he kind of, like, turns to her uh, back towards the Uhuru, and he he takes his bandana off, and, well, I guess I have to roll for it. Um, I'm going to try to open the the eye. Ooh, cool. I can't remember. Is it is it an arcane? I, what are you trying I, to it's do? It's truly just this? for show of just like he's he wants to say like I am a prophet. Yeah, sure, but also you need to find this strength in yourself because that's the only way you're going to be able to like get through this. So I he does want to admit to her that like he does have some kind of future vision, but uh it's not it's not what it looks like. And I don't think that it'll go make an, the way he thinks. <laughs> make an arcane check. This is still going to okay. be hard. I think you have a black die on there, at least because there have been multiple times throughout your brief relationship with this person where she has seen things that back up all of her incorrect beliefs. And also there was a short period of time where you let her believe those things because it was easier than having the argument. So, you know, each time you try to undo the damage that you've done, it gets a little harder to do that. All right. Hard. (sighs) Wow. Opening this eye is the most difficult thing all right oh wait that is that is two threats (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) okay so you're trying to open your eye to show her the true nature of what your prophecy Mm -hmm. is and you are not able to do that something uh, or, or you know what i think it is you were not able to do that but you like it's just two threats so there's not a failure compounding this so i, I think this is i really am trying to create a nebulous space around these neutral roles where you don't exactly fail yeah. but you don't exactly yeah. succeed i think what happens is your eye opens up and Adrian, you're doing this. Adrian is like holding your hands as you're having this conversation. Like your hands are on the, you, you, you put the basket down. A- Adrian is held your hands, like basically genuinely trying to convey to you all of the fervorous gratitude that, that she feels and her congregation feels uh, for you and your crew and everything you have done to save their town. 
And that's created this connection between you. You open your eyes and your vision swims with the divine pathways of the universe opening up and there is a vision that is shared between the two of you. And these are the threats. Adrian sees a future. She sees a potential future for herself. And that is, she could move forward and preach Jonnet as a new prophet of the slain god. And if she does that, she will gather people under her flock. There is an entire town of people who are already devoted to hearing the word from her lips. And not only that, but they have seen the church officials sent from the Voxes themselves fail them, where this crew of pirates have succeeded in their place. She has the evidence and an entire town of people willing to back it up. The next Skyjacks who land here are going to hear stories about the Uhuru and the boy who is part of that crew who hears the will of the slain god and performs sights and wonders in the slain god's stead. If she continues down that path, if she chooses to preach along those lines, it will grow into its own corner of this religion. And that will continue until Adrian herself is performing sights and wonders in the name of Jonnet the prophet and his wisdom. And she will become a saint and die for those beliefs. So, a vision was shared between you of a future where Adrian walks down the path believing you are a prophet and preaching that you are a prophet. She knows that if she does this, she will gain followers. And those followers will believe in your good deeds and words, and they will follow them. One of the results of that is that those people will believe that they don't have to punish themselves, that they can live for themselves and keep themselves safe. But they'll believe it because they think they were told that by the lips of a prophet. So there is this truth now that sits uncomfortably between you two. And it is that Adrian could take what has been said and done here in these past few days, and she could turn it into a new religion, a new religion that might offer some positive benefits and peace, but it will absolutely mean her death at the hands of the church. Adrian, I think we both saw what just happened, that vision. And I'll be, again, I'll be honest with you. Yes, sometimes I am gifted with visions, but also most of the time, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, I want to, I'm, I'm trying to, but 
I, I don't know how these visions will come to pass. And Adrian, you saw it. That's a future that I don't want. I don't want you to lay down your life for me. I stand by what I said. I want, Adrian, I want you to continue to teach self-reliance and build up the people around you. But to elevate someone to the point of being worshipped, especially if you're going to end up confronting and, and clashing with the church, that's not something I want. So, of course, you are free to do what you want, but know that I am telling you that I don't want this future. I don't want this for you. And it's, it's your future to create for yourself, but I'm just telling you my side. And that's all I can do. It's you, you have free will. Adrian sits under the weight of the future that she just saw. And she thinks about many things. She thinks about the life that she has lived for the church thus far and the devotion that she feels very passionately in her heart, the devotion that she pursued under the direction of the Church of the Slain God, the devotion that she pursued under your words when she believed wholeheartedly that you were a prophet or an aspect of the slain God given form to give her direction in a time of crisis and need. But she also hears you right now, hears you as Jonnet the person standing in front of her, expressing doubts and fears and guilt and I have drawn a luminary to figure out this character's future so that we can all know what it is. And the luminary that I drew is the perfect crime. Ooh. This Ooh. is, I gotta, yeah. I gotta look at the themes of this. Cause this is a, we've not pulled this. Uh, we have pulled this. Uh, this was one of the first luminaries that we pulled when Jonnet and Travis were sneaking civility. aboard the civility. Yep. The perfect crime like allowed them to knock enemies out the window without any problems whatsoever. Hmm. This I, I gotta I gotta read the the themes of this, but like part of me is uh, suspecting that you might just be getting away with everything. You might have said the right things at the right time or. Oh man, that um, makes me think that like the reverse of that, where it's like Adrian tells me one thing, and then as soon as I'm gone, just like starts to Keesh. yeah speak the gospel of Jonnet. Yeah. Okay. So competence, subtlety, and cleverness. All right, Tyler. I'm gonna meet you halfway here. I am going to say that at the drawing of the perfect crime, it means that what Adrian says to you in this moment is exactly what she needs to say in order to allay your fears and concerns over causing her potential death. You know, at preaching a new gospel and drawing the ire of the church. 
However, I do think it means that she is also going to walk down the path of preaching the gospel of Jonnet and the the way of the prophet that suggests a interpretation of the teaching of the slain church that runs counter to the church officials. What I will say is because this is the perfect crime and she has seen a future where she dies because she was doing this, that she will change her methods and her fate has not been sealed as whether or not she will die a martyr to her own cause. Okay. Jonnet, what you have shown me unquestionably is a significant thing. Even if you still insist that you are not a prophet and that you are not acting in the will of the slain God, what you have done here is a miracle. And that means that it's important for me to consider the things that you have said and the things that you have done. I think we both know that there are important things buried in all of that. And it's my duty to myself and my congregation to make sure that we're living differently, to make sure that we're not living according to the will of Lorenzo Arenzi, that we're living according to the will of a greater power that is good. I want you to get on that ship and know that things here are going to be different. And they're going to be different because of you. And that that's a good thing. And if it will make you feel better, I'm not going to rush towards my own death. Because I've been doing that for far too long. Jonnet sighs, grins, puts his headband back on, and just kind of like, again, resigns and just like, I guess that's as good as I could have hoped for. Um, take care, Adrian. I hope that I hope that our paths cross again. And I hope that you're able to lift up more people because you do have a gift for that. And then he points to his his forehead. We've both seen it. And with that, Adrian smiles. Thank you, Jonnet Kessler, for everything that you've done for this place. Take flight. Take flight. Janet turns around, starts to walk towards the ship. He nods to Adrian, grabs the wicker basket, starts to go up the plank. And then we see like over the shoulder of Adrian, like a wide shot of him walking up the plank. And then he stops and then he turns around. He like swiftly walks back down to Adrian. Hey, I actually don't. Did I get your last name? 
<laughs> you son of a... Oh. <laughs> okay, I'm going to... I'm going to pull up the notes for this arc and oh, see shit. if I did that. I don't know if I did. It's it's I just that you, 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 really, you really hit the John at Kessler and I really appreciated that. And then it just felt right. But I was like, Adrian, take flight. And then I, it didn't feel right. Okay, okay. And now James has learned his lesson. <laughs> I did do it. <laughs> I did. Adrian Helvig. Adrian Helvig. All right. I'm going to go back to going back on that ship now. We kind of I, we kind of already yeah. did the the good yeah, cool just, just goodbye. Just keep on flying. Just keep flighting. Keep taking flight. Yeah. It takes a while I, to take I, flight. Just, All right. Yeah. So you're going to it, I'm gonna, and it. Do you want some? John, okay. Thank you. I think Jonnet is like backing yes. up the plank, doing all of that. At one point, like he stumbles and drops the the wicker basket in the <laughs> into the water, and it's like never mind, and then he just runs up. And the camera zooms out as Jonnet disappears up the plank. There are quick shots of the shoveling of coal into various furnaces and the envelopes of the Uhuru and Il Sanguidio both light up, glowing red, uh, casting out that glow over the night as the citizens of Nordia all wave goodbye from their various places to the strangers who descended from the sky and saved their town. That's the episode. Yeah, that's Nordia, baby. That's Nordia. We're out. Oh, I I forgot my keys. (laughs) Oh oh, no, those keys you stole from that locksmith. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we forgot about the locksmith. Well, heroes, that was the episode and the arc, actually. You're probably looking at your feed and going, gosh, there seems to be a lot of episode left, so what's going on? Well, that's something I got to talk to you about, but before we get there, I want to get to all of the regular stuff that we normally deal with in the mid-roll of our episodes, just so that we're not preempting any of that. But please stick around because I consider it to be very important. Let's get things started off with a radvertisement, and this one comes to us from Storymancers. Storymancers is an ebook subscription service. They seek out hidden gems of fantasy fiction and pay the authors directly for the right to distribute their work. Their subscribers get three brilliant fantasy novels delivered straight to their inbox every month for just $7.49 a month. And the first month is completely free. If you love reading fantasy novels, if you like saving money, you like supporting independent authors, and you don't like wasting time trying to find your next great read, then you should really, really, really think about going to sign up. 
Receive your first three brilliant fantasy novels for free when you sign up for a trial subscription at Storymancers.com. That's Storymancers, like necromancers, but dealing with stories instead of dead things. Something tells me our audience very much enjoys fantasy stories, so this seems like a great opportunity. A huge thank you to Storymancers for supporting the show this week. Going to take a quick moment here to thank our backers on Patreon. We are currently in the middle of generating our new list for backer thank yous. So if you'd like to hear your name on air sooner rather than later, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash one shot podcast to sign up and support us. That support helps us cover our performers, our production, our editing, our music, all the things that went into making this arc of Skyjack so special. We couldn't have done this without you, and I appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks to everybody who supports us now, and everyone who's going to support us in the future. So, addressing what the rest of the audio for this week's episode is going to be... A couple months ago, someone pointed out to me that one of the major plot elements of Campaign Skyjacks is pretty dramatically problematic. I took time to consider it and agreed with that person's assessment. In response, I hired a cultural consultant to help break down the issue and help us troubleshoot and problem solve to find ways to take responsibility for it, address it within our narrative, and improve our show moving forward. I thought one of the best ways to communicate with our audience and showcase the cultural consultation process would be to bring our consultant, Dominique Dickey, onto the show to explain the problem, explain our solutions, and explain generally what cultural consultation is. It's my sincere hope that everyone who listens to and enjoys Campaign Skyjacks sticks around for this conversation, because I think it covers a lot of really important topics that I think everyone needs to keep in mind when listening to our show. But what we put together is an hour-long interview and conversation, so I'll summarize a little bit of it here so you'll know what you're going into. One of the original concepts we wanted with Campaign Skyjacks was to do a Weekend at Bernie's thing with a couple members of a pirate crew controlling a dead captain and trying to conceal the fact that the captain was dead. Also early on in the show, in the first episode or so, I decided that Captain Oromar Vale would be a black man. And originally, I thought this was an unrelated decision. However, the core concept of our show, combined with the context of Oromar's race, creates a really problematic picture. It led to a mostly white cast of characters and performers controlling the body and reputation of a black person. That's a huge problem especially for a show that wants to portray an anti-colonial narrative. This comes down to me making a decision without considering a larger context. It's not something I consider any member of the cast responsible for, except for me. So before we jump into this larger conversation, I want to take the opportunity to apologize for making a really bad call. Overall, I am so proud of the work everyone has put into Skyjacks. And I think there is so much value in the story everyone is collaborating to tell here. This problem existing within the show definitely weakens that overall narrative, and it's my fault that it's there. Some of you might have questions about the specificity of the different ways this is problematic, and what we're going to do to address it to improve our show, and not disrespect the narratives we've already created. The conversation that I recorded with Dominique gets into that in great detail. So all of those questions I believe will be addressed by the second half of the show. Finally, before we get into things, I want to make an additional note of why we decided to put this conversation here and now instead of earlier on in the Nordia plot. This situation obviously intersects with different parts of Oromar's overall story. And because I consider this issue so serious and important, I didn't want to leave the chance that any segment of our audience would come to resent the way we addressed it. 
meaning I wanted to fold this discussion into our story and not leave people feeling as though somehow this discussion spoiled larger parts of the show for themselves. I generally think of our audience as pretty good, but I have been around in the gaming community long enough to know that it is dangerous to think of any community as pretty good. So I want to take the time to say here very clearly that this process is an important part of making our show. It's important to me, it's important to the cast, and it's probably important to a lot of different members of our audience. When issues like this arise in our narrative or our fandom and people speak up about them, I need those conversations to be protected and respected. Through this process, we did take the time to consider our audience and the show and the narrative and ways in which we could address this without being disruptive and being respectful to the story that you have all come to love so much. So I am asking you specifically in this instance and all other instances surrounding our shows, our network, and really any other fandom you touch, don't downplay or excuse the importance of issues like this and don't harass the people who bring them up. I haven't seen it happen, but on the outset, I want to categorically condemn it. So now that we have revealed Oromar's spirit is once again controlling his body, I think we're at the best place in the story to have this conversation and walk through it side by side with our listeners. With that said, I'll leave it to this conversation between myself and Dominique about how we're addressing the issue and all the specifics surrounding it. Thanks so much to everyone who listens to and supports this show. I hope your affection for it helps you understand why we think this conversation is so important and why it matters to us to make you a part of it. With all that out of the way, let's get talking. Hey, heroes. There is a pretty important issue that we wanted to discuss and do that openly and uh, sort of invite all of you to understand how our thought process evolved around this and uh, what we're doing about it. Before we launch into that, I would like to introduce to all of you, Dominique Dickey. Dominique, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I am so glad you could join us on this to let everybody know. Dominique has already done a consulting session for us off the mics, but after we came to our conclusions and started implementing some of it into the show, I wanted to bring Dominique on so that we could have this conversation with all of you. Dominique, before we get started, I would love to walk the audience through what is a cultural consultant and how would they help a project like ours? Yeah, a cultural consultant is someone who is brought on externally to a team. So someone who has a bit of distance from whatever issue there might be, who can use their lived experiences as well as other research to complement those experiences to assess a project for any um, sort of things like racism or ableism or misogyny that may be invisible to people who have been like up close to the project through the process of creating it. And uh, like also, it's it's not even just uh, things that might be invisible to uh, creators. It's also things that uh, a creator, even if we're aware of the issue, might not be sure how to address independently too. Right. Yeah. If my job isn't only pointing out problems, although a lot of the time it feels like pointing out problems or opportunities to um, make work more inclusive. It's also when a client knows that they have room to make something more inclusive or they have fumbled in a way that plays into a prejudice or bigotry, then um, finding solutions. So it's sort of both sides of that coin. 
And and this doesn't have to even just be individual problems and projects. Like uh, since we're looking at a creative work, uh, we are telling a story here and issues can come up in the story that can cross cultural boundaries and, you know, potentially make uh, people that we'd like to have in our audience uncomfortable or upset. But it can go much deeper than that. A consultant such as yourself or, you know, other folks working in the field can help a company make structural changes from an institutional level, uh, help engineer things so that problems that pop up uh, don't happen again. That's not exactly how we're employing you today, but it is something that a consultant can do. Uh, and, you know, we want to point out that the scope of this work is much larger than just the way uh, we're able to showcase it here. And, you know, it is something that uh, our network broadly supports to be implemented in as many different ways as possible. With that kind of out of the way, Dominique, I would like to introduce you to the audience a little bit before we get rolling. I guess uh, my first question is how long have you been into like games and, and tabletop stuff? I've been into RPGs like hypothetically for about 10 years and then into RPGs like practically for uh, about four or five years. That is like a very common path that that I hear uh, for people who find this. Like I, I sort of accidentally happened into RPGs, but uh because it's such a specific hobby and it requires so many people, like there are a lot of folks that I've met that have like, ooh, I think I would like that, but have no idea how I would get into it. Yeah, yeah. And all through like middle and high school, I was interested in RPGs and would like buy games to read them, but didn't have the right group of friends to play with and didn't know how to go about like making friends outside of my very limited school social circles. So I didn't know how to meet people who would like actually play RPGs with me. And then I got to college and I'm, I'm still in college, um, unfortunately. Um, but I got to <laughs> college and it was like, oh, okay. So now I have access to a larger breadth of like people to interact with. Now I can actually find people who want to play RPGs with me. And luckily I formed a lot of friendships that just sort of pivoted organically into gaming. Like I met people through other hobbies and then everyone was like, hey, you want to play like cyberpunk? And like, yeah, hell yeah, I do. Oh, that's so cool. That's so great. I love hearing about how, how people get it. So like, is, is cyberpunk the game that kind of drew you in or? Yeah. So the first RPG that I ever played, and this is probably very common, was D&D 5th edition. But that sort of group that I played with was like my first week of being on campus having started college like mm -hmm. and i very like that group of people really played not so much for the story but as an excuse to spend time with each other um mm -hmm. and i which i i love as a play style but i think i wasn't as solidly like cemented into those social connections to the extent that i would have actually enjoyed it i think like in order to play as an excuse to spend time with someone i have to have like an extent like pretty strong friendship with them other than that i'm like oh i'm here to tell a story so that sort of play style didn't really work for me. And then I like left that group, didn't play RPGs for like a semester or so, made other friends, developed the kinds of friendships with people who I would like gladly play just to kill time with because they're people that I just like have other things in common with other than like playing a campaign together and love being around. And then it was like that second group of people who I'd met through other hobbies that got me into cyberpunk. And then that was like, where the trouble started for me, I guess, in terms of like <laughs> rapidly becoming hooked. 
Oh, I really identify with this because I, I think the first game for me uh, was D&D 3.5, but the games that I played after that, specifically like Shadowrun and Feng Shui, were games that like were similar enough to D&D, but like had differences that made me go, oh my gosh, this can be so much different than I, I've thought about. And, and like that opened the world for me. So so like the next question that I have for you is what motivated you to like sort of transition from uh, just being a, a player, somebody who, you know, wants to engage with these games as a, I, I want to avoid the language consumer, but like somebody uh, who, <laughs> who wants to like play games as opposed to produce them and work uh, in a more professional capacity. Um, I had ideas for stories that I wanted to tell um, and couldn't find systems that seemed right to tell them is how it really started that I would have ideas for adventures and think like, this particular group of friends that I have would have a lot of fun with this particular setting or this particular NPC. And I don't know what system that would work best within. Oh, wait, there isn't a system that would work best within. Oh, wait, I guess I have to write something. Um, (laughs) Was how I got into game design was just thinking about like, of the large network of people that I've been gaming with since I've been in school, like who would be most suited for which stories and then trying to find systems to tell those stories and occasionally drawing blanks. That's, I mean, that's really cool. Uh, I I remember the first time I had like ideas campaign or or session ideas that didn't fit the systems that I knew. I just tried to shoehorn them into systems. Uh, So I deeply admire the like, oh, this just doesn't exist. I'll do it. Like... (laughs) (laughs) I did try sort of shoehorning things like into D&D because I sort of fell into like the very, um, I think the very common like newbie gamer trap of like, well, everything just has to be D&D all the time forever, right? (laughs) So being like, oh, I want to tell like a space opera story, but I'm going to somehow shoehorn that into D&D and then everything like falls apart at the seams because Mm D&D is fundamentally just a combat simulator and is not suited for the kinds of things that I was trying to do in that instance. And then sort of like finding systems that would work that are more on the indie side or um, and like branching out in terms of what I buy and read and play um, and getting away from like the super, super mainstream stuff or just trying to like write my own super lightweight dice mechanics to to do what I wanted to do. Do you have like a, a favorite game that you've created or or a game that like maybe is your current fascination that you're proud of that that our audience might be able to go out and see? Yeah. So I recently put out a game called Trial. It is a story game that is a courtroom narrative drama. So players um, take on the role of witnesses in a murder trial and using improv techniques and some pretty lightweight dice mechanics construct the story of the murder collaboratively. And that is on itch. I'm Dom S. Dickey on itch. Uh, You can also find that on my website, dominiquedickey.com. And yeah, it's been out for two or three weeks and I'm super proud of it. Very cool. Very cool. I I, I love games that have a very well-defined premise. Like they, they know exactly what they're about and, and how to influence the players to engage with that. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Now I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about cultural consulting work and just ask like, uh, how did you get into this? Because like, I imagine it... There's a very particular fortitude I imagine a person has to have to like <laughs> decide, 
okay, I want to get into this and, and do this type of work? Yeah, there are a lot of answers to that question. I'm trying to think of which one I want to start with or if I even want to get into all of them. I think the most obvious answer is that just a lifetime of being Black and like existing at the intersection of multiple identities, like initially being read as female and having like that throughout my life and then coming out as trans and having like multiple gendered experiences and how the way that I'm racialized has changed as my gender has changed. I have had a lot of experience of being in the audience of media properties that have sort of fumbled in terms of falling into things where I would watch and think like, oh, well, that's that's not cool. Um, and wanting to prevent that experience for other people, wanting people to be able to enjoy the entertainment that they enjoy and the games that they enjoy and the actual plays that they enjoy. Wanting people to be able to enjoy the things that they enjoy without having that constant looming feeling of the other shoe's gonna drop and someone's gonna inevitably mess up in some way that's going to ruin your enjoyment of the thing. Because I feel like I live with that for most of my life of thinking like, if, if I'm consuming media that's made like by white people or by cis people for primarily white and cis audience, I can only have so much trust in the enjoyment that I'm feeling because at some point something is going to happen that is going to ruin my experience for me. And wanting to liberate other Black people, other trans people, other queer and chronically ill and like disabled people from just that constant fear that the media that you enjoy is going to inevitably do wrong by you somehow. And the other factor is just that um, I had gotten to a point where I was pretty good at standing up to microaggressions and aggression, aggressions in my everyday life and had gotten to a point where I felt pretty confident and just not taking bullshit and asking hard questions. Like if someone said something that was racist or transphobic or sexist and it was supposed to be a joke, being the person who goes, I don't get it. Why is that funny? And then watching them like fumble <laughs> and look. Yeah, I, I do that. I'm that person. And it's, it's very um, challenging, but also rewarding for me. And I realized I could get paid to do that. Like I could do that professionally <laughs> and why not? It's good money. Yeah. So those are, those are the things that brought me to consulting. No. And, and like, those are all really understandable things. I mean, I, I think everybody in our audience, especially because we're in a very nerdy section of interest. I feel like that nerdy mentality, a lot of it is taking things that you love, and a lot of those are stories or properties or you know games of some kind, and making them something that is close to your identity. And the experience of having something so close to you do something that hurts you. That, that, yeah. That's very shocking and jarring. Like I, I know as a bisexual person, whenever I, I see a TV show or something that feels like it's flirting with queer themes, like initially I'm like, oh yes, this is so good. And if that is not handled like well, or, you know, goes bad in an obvious and preventable way, it is like such a gut punch. It, it really takes you yeah. out of it. So, you know, that that is like a cool proactive defense decision is, you know, I, I'm going to actively prevent this from happening. And also, you know, it, it definitely does take, I don't, I don't know, like a lot of emotional fortitude and confidence uh, to speak up in situations when, when things are going wrong. So it, it's definitely work that not everyone can do. 
And uh, a lot of people might assume that this sort of consultation work is just based on personal perspective or unpacking, but like there's also a greater awareness that you need to have of tropes or themes and whatnot. So you can break down and explain those things to people as well. Yeah, it's not just, I think it's very easy to make it sound like, oh, I have this lived experience of this identity and that qualifies me to speak to it that qualifies you to speak to your experience but there are so many other experiences and so many other sort of pitfalls that you have to look out for so like having a good understanding of tropes and how they're employed having a good understanding of like what media has operated in the same niche before what you're consulting on and how that's worked like it takes more than just and I, I think I'm very guilty of saying like oh I have a lifetime of being like black, trans, whatever else. And that qualifies me to speak on this, but it's so much more than just that. And I really think that like, not everyone is cut out for it in the sense of all of the additional kind of research and knowledge that it requires of being able to think outside of just your own experience. But I also think that not everyone has the like capacity for what it asks of you emotionally, which is totally fine. Like, it's not everyone's bag. Like not everyone has to, has to put themselves in those like difficult emotional positions of having to stand up and say like, you did a bad thing and here's how I'm going to help you fix it. Like, cause that's, I don't know how to, um, I feel like the words that I'm trying to use are like falling apart right now. What I'm trying to say is that I think that I'm pretty good at it, but I also <laughs> think it's very difficult and it's difficult for me every time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like, th there is a lot more that goes into it, too. And we, we got to meet you through a mutual friend, Mendez, who does lots of cultural consultation work and actually teaches seminars on doing that work. Some of those seminars uh, ha have toured different conventions like Big Bad Con, uh, yeah. where he'll kind of help people understand how this work works and how the communication process works and what areas are difficult and how to be goal oriented about it. Uh, one of the things uh, that goes into this that I think a lot of people don't initially assume or see is cultural consultants are also trying to communicate with the people who have hired them in ways that will make their perspective effective. You know, it is possible for an organization like ours to employ someone like you and you can tell us, you know, these are the problems uh, and we can then go, oh, but we like the problems. So is there a way that hiring you just makes those problems not problems anymore? Uh, yeah. And, and I've and had a couple jobs like that too, where it's like, you hire me and I tell you what I think the problem is. And then you're like, oh, we hired a consultant and just like skip off and don't fix the problem. Yeah. And that's like disheartening every time and just learning how to communicate in ways that actually gets that across. Something that I found also is like, don't consult for free um, to anyone out there who might be a consultant. If you you know need me to tell you this, Partly because like you deserve to be paid for your labor, but partly because if um, if you're a line item in a budget, then whoever's in charge of making those decisions about your feedback and how to implement your feedback, then let them listen to you because they're like, oh, we paid for this feedback, so we better use it. <laughs> yeah, uh, especially when your organization is our size and uh, the budget does not stretch super far all the time. 
So I think a lot of that uh, is kind of going to pair nicely with uh, the next thing that I'd like to talk about, which is why we chose to go out and hire an external consultant for this issue specifically. Uh, I'll sort of lay that out a little and we'll get back to it later. Uh, This is regarding the story of Oromar Vale and uh, some of the things that happened to his character and with his character and the main cast of the show. Um, and specifically, these are this is a racial issue. It is uh, Ormar being a black man and what the context of that says about the events of the story. Now, we do have a, a black person on our cast. One of the reasons that I wanted to hire an external consultant is it should not be Tyler's job uh, to call things out like this. So I, I, I kind of want to talk about like, why it is a good idea to hire an external consultant, why uh, it shouldn't be the role of people who are involved with a project necessarily to always be, you know, the the watchdog making sure that everything is pristine and perfect or what have you. Yeah. The first thing that stands out to me is that I have a more external perspective. So I haven't been like immersed in the show from day one and therefore I'm able to sort of flag things that might not stand out to like even Tyler, who's just been head down in making the show. And the other thing is, I think that if you were to put that labor on Tyler, even if he were compensated for it, it would put him in a really bad position of being like the only black person in the room, which I'm not sure how to like effectively convey how alienating that position can be. And like, I've been in it several times, um, especially going to, uh, sorry about the sirens, I live on a busy street, um, especially going to like a super white university and just being like, the only black person in like my classes or like my social groups frequently. And that position, I don't want to use the universal you, I'm gonna speak about how that impacts me specifically, but it makes me feel like I have to be, um, more accepting of can I curse? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Have to be more accepting of like bullshit that I wouldn't put up with otherwise. <laughs> um because my social relationships depend on my tolerance for things that I actually might not be okay with. Whereas if you bring in someone from outside who doesn't have that same social buy-in or that same those same like social ties then you have someone who is free to say what needs saying without worrying necessarily about, I don't want to say like without worrying about the consequences because there are always consequences, but without worrying about the necessary, like the interpersonal consequences of making someone uncomfortable by calling out an inappropriate use of privilege. Yeah, there is a complex uh, social and power dynamic uh, that goes into a a position like even uh, someone like Tyler, who is a collaborator on the show, who who is part of what makes our show work. You know, that definitely gives Tyler a lot of power and and authority over what happens in our programs, uh, but also it's work that Tyler is getting paid for. So there is the pressure of. I want this work environment to stay good because I want to keep 
coming back and doing it. And there's a social environment too. It is not uncommon at all that privileged folks who get called out for bad behavior or I don't want to frame it exactly like making mistakes, but, you know, uh, doing, causing harm either intentionally or unintentionally uh, can be fragile about it and it can damage relationships if you speak up. And it should not be the role of anyone who's working on a project uh, to calculate whether or not they can afford to damage a particular social dynamic or or put risk towards something that is work that has a financial incentive behind it. And on top of all of that, this is also something that is work. As we acknowledged before, it is a job and it is a job that goes on, you know, much deeper than a person's identity, which is all to say with things like this, uh, when, when problems like this pop up in the show, I feel like uh, the responsibility falls on the organization more than the individual players in it, meaning it's not Tyler's fault if racist things happened in campaign because, you know, there are all sorts of calculations that a person like Tyler would have to be going through. Uh, it is the reason that a program like ours should go out and find an external source uh, because that's the best way to get effective feedback and communication surrounding this. Uh, because, you know, Dominique, you are a lovely person and it's great to work with you, but uh, you're also not the friend that I like talk to every week over Zoom when I'm doing this show. Uh, So that's a very different and safer dynamic for this kind of work. I come in, I say what needs to be said, I bounce. It's I don't have to do all of those social calculations about if I'm like ruining a working relationship or if I am creating a hostile work environment because I'm doing exactly what I have been hired and paid to do. And it alleviates a lot of the worry, um, which is also why I feel safer calling things out in my capacity as a consultant than I do in my capacity as like a friend or a student because it is the role that is expected of me. It is what I have been brought on to do. Yeah. And, you know, for for someone in my position, uh, when hiring a consultant, like it is sort of I have hired this person to uh, tell me tough truths in, in certain circumstances. So it takes some of at least for me, definitely not for everyone, it it takes some of that emotional element out of it. Like I know that, hey, this is a problem that I am collaborating with Dominique uh, for us to solve together. Uh, This is not not someone like lashing out or or whatever excuses people use uh, to ignore like good sound advice in situations that are less professional and well-defined about all this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So with that, understanding what process we're going through and why we decided to employ you and, you know, why why that was necessary, let's actually talk about uh, the issue and kind of we'll start at least defining the issue. Uh, So we have been recording campaign for about or campaign skyjacks for about two years now and very early on in uh the series we added oromar vale who is the character of the captain on the show uh who very famously is dead 
they are a dead person that in a moment of desperation, our main characters resurrected this person's body in order to cover up the fact that the captain died to keep the ship running and keep themselves from having to face a potentially crew that was angry and very loyal to that captain. The problem with this is that Ormar Vale is a black man and what this story situation meant is we had a cast of majority white people, um, some white characters, controlling the body and voice and reputation of a black man. And when you look at it from the right distance, it's easy to see why that's a problem. But Dominique, since you are our cultural consultant, I would love for you to kind of lay out explicitly what is problematic about this situation, regardless of whatever intentions we had when we we started the process. Yeah. So what stood out to me immediately when I was first hearing about the situation is that it replicates really problematic racial power dynamics of having black bodies controlled by white people, which I think like the most common referent for that is slavery um, and the enslavement of like people in the Western hemisphere, specifically in like the colonial Americas. But it also goes beyond that to even like as recently as like the civil rights movement or things more recent than that of just these instances we've seen in our history and in the media of white people controlling what black bodies are free to do and what black people are capable of. And this sort of took that and made it more literal by more explicitly giving white people control over the agency of black person. You know, what? one of the things with, with a story like this, um, being in a fantasy world, those metaphors and the way they can connect to those things are a really important part of the conversation. And it's why, you know, we, we need the kind of awareness of uh, the larger context of those decisions, especially in what we're trying to do with Skyjacks, creating an anti-colonial narrative. If we're going to have, you know, forces in our world representing colonialism, whether it's the Red Feather Syndicate or the Mariners Drowned Sailors, those metaphors kind of map onto that anti-colonial story that we're telling. So if it is possible for someone to read into Oromar Vale's story and make those connections, then it's kind of a thing that is undeniably there for us and, and not something that we can ignore and look the other way and go, oh, well, this is a big Weekend at Bernie's joke and that's the big thing that we're trying to do. Even if that is the goal, uh, <laughs> We, we, we can't ignore kind of how this came together. And uh, to pull back the curtain further for the audience, Oromar, or at least the, the captain of the Uhuru, is not a character that existed until that first session that we sat down beyond. We knew there was this pirate ship. We knew the pirate ship was called the Uhuru, which is Swahili for freedom. So like there were a lot of different directions we could have gone initially figuring out like, how did this pirate ship come together? Who was this captain who is now dead? There was 
part of me originally who was like, well, maybe our captain is kind of a bumbling figure and it's not a great tragedy that this person died or maybe they were a cruel person. And, you know, we can we can look past these things. But I kept circling back to the name the Uhuru and going, well, you know, if this is a pirate ship that was named that, it should probably be a black person who has taken control of the ship and named them that. It could have been a collection of crew or what have you, but I, I decided it would be the captain's decision. And so Oromar became a black man. And even though we had the premise very early on that this figure is dead and we're doing a weekend at Bernie's thing with this character, adding that context changed things. And it changed things regardless of what the intents of the universe are. You know, in, in Skyjack's even though we're talking about colonial themes, we haven't introduced dynamics of racial tension. Uh, there is a lot of cultural tension in the world, but one of the goals that that we had, like in constructing the setting, is we wanted anyone listening to the show or you know eventually, hopefully, playing a role playing game in the setting to not have to automatically feel like well. My race is a reflection of a struggle in the real world and it's a reflection of struggle in this game. So even lacking that context, we still have the context of the outside world because the outside doesn't go away right. just because we're talking about a fantasy. Even if you're playing in a fantasy world that doesn't have our understandings of race and racism, your viewers or your listeners and your players are still approaching it from living within these cultural understandings that we've sort of been like indoctrinated with from day one. So like, yeah, like what you said, the outside world doesn't go away. Even if when you're playing, you're playing in like a totally removed setting, you still have to keep in mind how things look through the lens of the world that we live in. Kind of laying out that problem, we we have this character who is a, a black man and the events that happen to him kind of mimic really a lot of very toxic elements that are going on in the outside world. I mean, it's not just like slavery is definitely a part of that metaphor, but there's also cultural appropriation and appropriation of uh, significant figures in black history or, you know, even black pop culture, like using a performer's words or, or, or the way they dress for the profit of, you know, folks who are not black or twisting a civil rights activist's words to further an agenda that they would not identify with. These are things that happen all the time of using a black person and their achievements and strengths to benefit people that are not that person. So th there is like a very deep rooted problem here that, you know, it, it can't be the sort of thing where we go, oh, well, now that we're aware of it, we won't keep doing the things that are toxic uh, in some way. I think it has to be addressed more specifically, which I, I think is a good segue into uh, before we talk about our specific solutions as a cultural consultant, what potential solutions like given a problem like that uh, would you want a company like ours to explore? Yeah. So I would prioritize, and this is what like came about in our initial consultation call, just prioritizing agency of the captain and finding ways for him to regain control over his story and also allowing for the sort of emotional consequences of that liberation of like maybe there's a deep hurt or anger there um, 
and allowing for like the sort of natural unexpected feelings that would come out of getting your body back. But what was a priority for me was that the only solution that I would advocate for is for the captain to regain control over himself and for the crew to face some sort of consequence for this like extended charade of controlling him. So that is the conclusion that we came to in our first discussion. Um, And so with that, I I can sort of lay the elements that we had in place before the audience. Since, Since we really have to address this issue and now fold into our story the fact that a violation took place to this character and it kind of reflects larger violations uh, that, that we see happening to black folks throughout history and like in an ongoing sense in modern contexts and, and even in other fictional contexts. It's the sort of thing that requires us to fold liberation into the story. It's one of those things where I don't think we can say those things, even indirectly or unintentionally, and just walk away from them. Uh, Now that those things are out there, the way in which we speak against them has to become an explicit part of our unfolding narrative. Otherwise, you know, we kind of lazily did something very irresponsible and potentially very hurtful to to our audience. And goodness knows uh, how far that extends. So with that, I, I want to talk about the elements in the story that were kind of already in place beforehand and how those things are changing in order to address this specifically and the ways that we're going to address this very complex thing that happened. It's very clear to anybody who is listening to the podcast that uh, something was going on with Oromar. Like, I think even from like the third or fourth episode, uh, we we had uh, the captain doing things that were outside of the necromantic control and whatnot. Uh, I had kind of wavered very early on like who is this person the captain and I I think even in the first episode I had kind of mentioned that he ruled with an iron fist and I think if you compare that Oromar to the Oromar that we have in our current story you can see I walked away from that uh, idea very quickly Um, I, I decided instead of having this person being cruel or incompetent it was much more interesting if Oromar was just a really cool heroic figure and his death is a tragedy and the cast of the show is always kind of contending with his reputation and standing in his shadow, which left uh, a lot of like really cool things for us to play with. And I eventually became so attached to the character that I'm like, well, you know, I know the character's dead and a big premise of the show is that this character's dead, but I do kind of want them back in some way because there's so much cool stuff going on with this person. So from an early on position, we were kind of foreshadowing that even if the captain is dead, uh, he's still around in some way. And uh, so very explicitly, I can state the captain's uh, spirit has been haunting his body since that body was resurrected and slowly trying to find ways that he can regain control. That's a thing that we kind of had in the works. However, where this changes and one of the ways in which this consultation has affected our decisions is it became very apparent to me that like 
reclaiming that agency is something that needs to happen soon and now, which is one of the reasons why we did this consultation like towards the beginning of this new arc on campaign. And it has ended with Oromar kind of fully stepping into his body and taking control over it and sort of starting to communicate strong and hard boundaries for the characters of the main cast because I didn't want it to be an ongoing situation where there was a character whose literal entire agency was was being commanded by other people that was very bad for for us so like that that change happened quickly and we're sort of moving forward Oromar's story very quickly in that way the next component of it is uh, something that I, I think we can uh, have a little bit more back and forth talk about, which is the emotional uh, component of this story. It, it's not just that Ormar has to reclaim his agency as a character. There have to be consequences and difficult emotional conversations kind of surrounding that. Because no matter how you look at this, whether it is like the explicit text of the story and what happened with Oromar or any of the number of situations that are similar in the real world or act as a metaphor in the real world, there are difficult emotions that surround that. So I, I kind of want to go like if we're portraying an emotional journey for characters who are the main characters of our show. Uh, who are going to be sticking with us, how do we navigate through something like this in a way that would feel authentic? And this doesn't need to be a specific solution. It's just, you know, from a consultant's perspective, uh, how, how would you advise us to move forward in some of those conversations? Yeah, I think that the circumstances are a bit different for an actual play, because a lot of the solutions that I would come up with would just be like, would just to, like to say, oh, you should do this or you should do this. But then that takes away like player agency, which you're sacrificing agency because of an overall problem of agency, which is not really a solution. Um, <laughs> like the players should have a say over the story and the story should come about organically. But then there are still like certain changes that need to happen, right? So how do you balance those things? What if I were, if this were like fiction or like a um, a campaign that were like, being written and not like played through then I would have more concrete fixes so I think we talked about like a bunch of options depending on what the players chose to do but something that I think is the most important is looping the players in and saying like so we brought on a consultant to do this thing and saying that like without railroading the story something needs to happen about this element of the story and just to make sure that everyone is aware that like this story element that you've been playing with for however many episodes for two years is going to um begin to change and you won't be pushed into interacting with that in a set way but you need to be aware that something is happening which is like a really hard position to be in as a GM, I can imagine, of saying like <laughs> saying like something thematically is going to change with the story, but to make it still feel like the players are like playing through it. I mean, I feel very fortunate in the group that we have for Skyjacks because everybody 
the, I, I think more so than the dynamic of other role-playing games, even that I've been a part of, uh, there is kind of a shared agency over the story and kind of goal that we have in the ways in which we're collaborating. Everybody was very on board to, oh yeah, let's change the dynamic and figure out a way that we can work together. I, I think an area that might have been uncomfortable or difficult, and I, I don't even know if that's the right word, I, that, that could have been, is I, as a collaborator, have to you know take this issue to the people that I'm working with and go, hey, you know, we we hired somebody, we looked at this, we got a professional opinion, and there is a problem with the work that we have been doing. And I bear a lot of responsibility for that because I'm the GM. This is an NPC that I controlled. Uh, even if there were collaborative decisions that were made to get us to the point, like it was definitely my decision uh, to make uh, decide that this character was a black man and, you know, introduce uh, that to the storyline. So it, it is difficult, uh, I think, for for me to, you know, go to these collaborators that I have and say, hey, for my mistake, there are going to be changes to the story for, for, you know, something that I have been overseeing. We all have to answer to a lot of like larger conversations uh, that might feel large and intimidating and even confusing for people on the cast, which I, I think is another reason that we were all very grateful to have like the guidance of an experienced consultant to give us ideas um, <laughs> and, and help us work through those things. So yeah, I, I'll say that everybody on the cast was really on board for figuring out how to move this forward. So the dynamic that we had set up together is that the captain was going to be coming back in some way by the end of this arc. I, I did not reveal to the cast when Oromar was going to be coming back, when he was going to be fully seizing control of his body. But I did tell them what we were going to be doing. Uh, we, we had decided part of the story uh, that we wanted to touch on and part of the way that we wanted to craft this now necessary liberation narrative that we were doing with Oromar was his coming back couldn't be something that was gifted to him right. by the characters. He had to reclaim his own agency, uh, which is why uh, we established at the end of this arc that Ormar now, like originally they had used Dref's heart to issue commands to Oromar's body and, and, and move him around in absence of Dref. Now, Oromar uses uh, the connection they have to the heart to take life force for himself to enable himself to take independent action and do the things that he wants to do. This is uh, something that I, I think you had identified initially like a tech, uh, like an area that could be troublesome if we had a cast who feels like, oh, well now... Now I'm resenting this character in some way because he's taking something from me, which is why I brought it to the cast and we discussed it kind of in the open, like, okay, how do we have fun with this story? And, you know, we, we kind of decided, especially uh, with Travis being a flawed character to begin with, uh, we could focus this part of the narrative around him. Travis is somebody who, you know, 
escapes guilt and escapes responsibility for problems all the time. Now that there is like a magical connection that he really doesn't control that forces him to have to deal with like a very serious grievance uh, that someone had with him. And we felt like, especially after this arc where he had really kind of reviewed his past behavior, this is the perfect opportunity to give him a problem that he can't run away from, essentially. And we've also uh, decided that this connection in that uh, Oromar claims, you know, agency and, and power from also allows the cast to understand something of the emotions uh, that Oromar is experiencing right now, which is a way to give this character a voice before we fully give them a voice. Um, uh, And I, I want to say that like explicitly and undoubtedly this story, at least this part of the story has to end with Oromar fully reclaiming agency over himself uh, and resolving these issues. Um, I will say, I I think I saw some people discussing on our Discord, seeing Oromar's story uh, kind of as a disability narrative, where there were uh, people who were expressing the idea of Oromar returning from death or, or completely returning from death in some way, uh, might reflect uh, poorly on a disability narrative and, you know, quote unquote, curing a disability. Uh, I, I will say I have given that a lot of thought uh, while I have already been thinking about this. And I definitely see where where, where people are coming from uh, with that perspective. I think explicitly as a creator, I will say, especially because we're dealing with this racial uh, element to the story, I explicitly death is not considered a disability in, in this universe. And that's not the way we're going to be framing this because I believe Oromar's liberation is too important to muddle in any way. Um, so like explicitly, I, w- I want to say that that's where the story is going. Um, just so there isn't confusion around that. And there there isn't a question of like, well, why are you curing this person? It's like, well, th- this person died. He, he didn't lose a limb. He, he isn't dealing with uh, another disability. It is death and returning from death. And even though uh, with the necromancy that we've introduced to the story, there's a medical framework to that. What is more important to us in this circumstance is that Oromar is able to fully reclaim himself. That's kind of closest to the spirit of what we want out of an anti-colonial story. So that's all step one, setting up this uh, storyline. What we're about to enter into now is the difficult emotional unraveling of different aspects of this uh like as, as we started rolling on this and i established i wanted to establish that oromar is angry he is actively upset with the main cast of characters that includes everybody who is part of this conspiracy that has been moving his body around but i realized quickly that we were kind of straying into the territory of we don't want to frame Oromar as an angry black man, which I would love since we got Dominique, we got you in the room. I'd love to tag you in and just explain why that's a problem. Yeah, I think that there's um, a lot of emphasis put on like who is entitled to anger and who has to stay like calm in order to be respected. I think that people that are already marginalized, there's a lot of stigma around expressing anger or other strong emotions. 
I think that especially, and I, I we're seeing this a lot now with like the difference between peaceful pro- peaceful protests and <sighs> the big air quotes and like rioting or looting is that like white people are allowed to riot when you lose the Super Bowl, but like black people are being murdered indiscriminately and you don't get to like smash a car window over it because you have to be like respectable in order to be listened to. So I think there's a lot of cultural baggage in portraying black people as angry, even if that anger is justified and righteous. I think that it was important to me that the captain express some sort of emotion about what he has been through and what's happened to him or Captain Trans. Uh, it, it is he, him, yes. Okay. Um, he expressed like some sort of outrage about what's happened to him without falling into this sort of tropey thing that tends to happen when white people depict black anger. Like that was a big danger territory that, that I kind of got identified, which is sort of going to help define the next plot. You know, the, the conversation about respectability politics and, uh, you know, who is entitled to express anger and hurt how is something that we have been interested in discussing on the show from the beginning. Uh, it is not a mistake or or a coincidence that the first thing that this crew did uh, in their first arc was sink a ship called The Civility. We wanted to go, hey, this is a show kind of about being able to say things and and do things to act against colonialism, act against capitalism and the toxic structures associated with them without having to, you know, pull ourselves back and pretend that uh, these aren't things that hurt us and, and that that hurt doesn't make us emote in a way that is justified when, when, you, when you look at the damage caused by it. So we are going to go into an arc where specifically the captain and the rest of our main cast have difficult conversations and and try to navigate an awkward relationship where the captain had already decided against destroying these people. We we did that very quickly in that scene where the captain showed up in Dref's office and pointed a gun at Travis and then put the gun down. That was the captain explicitly going, I feel very angry. I'm not going to kill this man, partially because that would destroy me as well. Uh, he instead put the, put uh, Dref's heart in Travis's hand, going explicitly, his plan is, I am going to use this thing that has been used against me to reclaim myself. There is anger, there's sadness and frustration that needs to be resolved between these people. And it has to happen in a conversation that will feel like it is moving around a lot because the emotions involved are very complicated emotions. So I don't want to say that the captain is necessarily ever going to forgive uh, the thing that was done to him because I, I don't feel that that is authentic what I will say is the story that we want to present surrounding the captain will like there are ways in which characters on our cast have been controlled and can identify with that struggle. 
You know, uh, there are slights that they have been dealt, even supernatural abuses that they have suffered. And part of this upcoming arc is going to be figuring out how they come to mutual understanding with the captain and ways in which this cast can find reparations to create an effective working relationship with the captain. It's not just the captain's story of reclaiming his agency. It is the crew's story of taking responsibility for the things that they have done in order to, you know, I don't want to say resolve it because, again, it's a complicated emotional thing. It might be ongoing, but in order to do what they can, you know, if, if you are somebody in our audience who saw these tropes, uh, saw, saw this connection and was hurt by it, you know, the, the, I don't think there's anything that we can do necessarily uh, that makes it so that, well, we addressed that issue. It's all gone now. That hurt can always be around and, and still be around. What uh, we want to do as a company is sort of proactively do the best we can to address it and turn around uh, the problem as best we can and show that even though something like that happened, we can still be trusted to tell the story that we want to tell and show that we don't want to hurt you. The characters on the show have to do that with the captain as well. Uh, and for part of that, Oromar is going to be angry. For part of that, Oromar is going to be sad. For part of that, I think Oromar is, might not know exactly what he wants. It might change day to day, and that is part of the process of, of moving through hurt like this. Definitely, yeah. So that's where we are right now. We're, we're probably going to be taking this story in stages, kind of re-reviewing at the end of each arc. The last thing that I want to talk about is something that is very, very important and that we will be working on. The big thing that Dominique pointed out uh, is that, hey, Ormar is absolutely going to need a voice at some point. Right now, uh, Ormar is an NPC who is controlled by me, and there is absolutely no way we can navigate a storyline as problematic as the one we found ourselves in and end it with uh, this black character being voiced by a white man. That's just not going to work. Uh, so we we are going to have to cast an actor to play Oromar because this is actual play. That's going to be an involved process and will take some time because this is somebody who I'm going to be bringing in, not just as somebody to read lines because I we, we had briefly discussed, well, what if we just have somebody dub over, dub over Oromar's lines? At the end of the day, that is still a white person's words, my words uh, being put into a black person's mouth, uh, it's just not going to work. Uh, so we're going to need to find somebody who not only not only do we think embodies Oromar through voice and, and can deliver good performance, uh, but can be a very close collaborator with us in forming the story of his character. So, you know, that that is something, while it is challenging, it's something that I believe we absolutely have to do. But it might not happen right away. And the way we're going to deal with that in universe, in story, is kind of slowly unfolding Oromar's, you know, reclaiming of his body. Uh, at first, he's probably going to be communicating through writing and this 
emotional connection that he has to Travis and Gable through the heart and just like the physical actions of his body. When we have found a performer that we think is a good fit for Oromar, we will, you know, invite that person to uh, be a part of the cast and figure out how Oromar's story progresses from there. Um, but I wanted to point out that that is something that uh, I'm very grateful that Dominique is like a very kind of obvious thing. Uh, it should have been uh, that Dominique pointed out to us. Um, and looking at it, I, I feel good about kind of the plan that we have in place. And ultimately, I think this touches back on one of the other difficult things about cultural consultation work, Dominique. And it's that a big part of this after you've done your job is out of your hands and it's kind of on our shoulders to to make that work in your experience as a consultant i i guess like i just like to talk about that a little bit because you know that that must be a challenging emotional experience uh stepping back and going well they either got to sink or slim swim or whatever so i try to remind myself and i i think i started off before i was a cultural consultant. I was an academic consultant, which is similar to editing people's papers, but without actually making the changes yourself. You just advise on what changes you believe should be made. So I had a lot of experience of watching people work and having those moments of being like, oh, you were so close to nailing it. Here's <laughs> what I would do, but I can't do it for you. I just have to tell you what I would do and then trust you to do it. And then people like obviously like don't take your feedback or don't take your feedback to the extent that you think that they should. And then they're like, well, why didn't I get an A? And I'm like, because you didn't do what I said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a fun student job that I had for a while. And I think that just applying that to cultural consulting of saying like, I can tell you what I think you should do, but ultimately it's on you to implement it. And all I can do is step back and know that I conveyed my feedback clearly and coherently, and I identified all of the issues that were in my power to identify. And beyond that, it is entirely out of my hands. And um, something else that I have noticed that comes into that is that a lot of consultants work anonymously, or even on a case-by-case -case basis of wanting to remain anonymous on certain projects. And that depends on the extent to which at least for me when I'm choosing if I want to work anonymously on something, and I'm obviously very not anonymous on this project, is the extent to which I trust the people in charge of the project to, to take my feedback in a way that makes me proud. There are times where I'm like, so I show up, I give my feedback, I know they're not going to take it, therefore don't put my name on this thing. That can be really hard of like, oh, I did all this work and it was probably for nothing. But I really believe that with this project, at least, that like, it, yeah, it's out of my hands, but, and I'm pretty confident that it'll go well. Well, that, that is uh, a relief to hear for sure. <laughs> but, you know, we, we can also talk about this in terms of uh, if you have a project that is like ours, um, it's kind of an ongoing thing uh, dealing with a major issue like this. Is there a way that your consultancy could be reengaged? Uh, you know, th there is a, like certainly with a lot of the cultural consultants that, that I've spoken to, they advise, uh, hey, if you are a novelist who is writing a character who is outside of your experience, you should probably bring in a consultant 
through multiple stages of your process uh, yeah. beforehand when you're kind of doing uh, general plotting, certainly after you have written so that details can be read and potential problem areas can be pointed out and, you know, kind of part of the final finishing uh, so that you really understand the full context of how your work is being experienced and consumed. Um is there a, a good way for, for folks like us to check in or like good, what, what is a good roadmap for us to go, okay, you know, we've, we've gone past our next hurdle. Uh, how do we make sure that we're still on track? I think that, I mean, you've pointed out a series of milestones of the captain, like taking more physical control of the captain expressing in a more emotional response of bringing on a voice actor to be the captain's voice. And these are all um, key sort of inflection points where it'd be valuable to get a consultant's opinion. I think that you, I think that it varies based on the project of where those key points are. I think like ideally there would have been a consultant around for the decision to make Ormar like a black man, but like obviously not, right? But I think like if you're looking at doing something like this, maybe have a, and just like to cover all your bases, have a consultant on before you actually like record your first episode and like just talk through all your NPCs and the dynamics that you see in between NPCs and characters and like how you see that playing out um, to identify any red flags in that before you even get too far out the gate. But I think like for something that's as far along as as like campaign skyjacks, I think just continuing to check in as you hit these milestones of the captain regaining like freedom. Yeah, I, I think that that really very effectively points out the ways in which involving consultants earlier on in the process could have saved us a lot of trouble and consternation. I can tell you how bad it felt having it pointed out to me that the, this problem was there and then thinking oh no it's there and has been there so long <laughs> P- part of this I, I think there is a symptom of the old colorblind approach to racism that that enters this in going well yeah i can just make because I, I have this uh, pirate ship, I can just make any this, this person any race or whatever because it, the important thing is that they're a pirate captain and that's all that matters. And like, clearly that's not true. Uh, and a cultural consultant can help you with that process, especially with our goal of making uh, our network, generally speaking, primary goals are to make games more accessible and uh, more inclusive. That inclusivity, uh, if, if we had included somebody right from the beginning, uh, you know, we wouldn't be encountering this issue at a point where it's a serious problem and we have to do a lot of very careful work to unravel it and address it and put it in the best position that it can be even if it's not the story we initially intended to tell it is now an essential story that must be told in order for our project really in my mind to be like worthwhile or or on target for what it was trying to be so you know that that is that is a a great way of looking at things and i i think what we'll do is probably after each arc we'll sit down and check in they might not be public check-ins but we'll we'll talk 
talk about, okay, here's what happened. Here are the threads that we're dealing with. Are we still on track? Especially because we've never run any sort of audition process before. I can see how it would be extremely useful to have a consultant uh, on board to help us structure that in a way uh, that is that is fair and open and good. Uh, so all of that is great feedback. And, you know, I am also hopeful about this. I see this as like a very serious thing, but after like that initial emotional shock, like I can definitely say speaking with Dominique uh, and, and going through this consultation process made me feel so much better about it. It made me feel more confident in the project, more confident in the art. And, you know, especially with the way the cast jumped on board for uh, addressing this in our story as we move forward, uh, it, it made me feel good uh, about our cast too, which is all to say Yay for cultural consulting. And <laughs> so uh, a huge thank you, Dominique. Uh, could you please let our listeners know uh, where they can find your work and, and find you if they'd like to follow you and support you? Yeah. So you can keep up with my work at DominiqueDickey.com. I'm also pretty loud about whatever I have going on at uh, Dom S. Dickey on Twitter. And my newest game, Trial, the narrative courtroom drama that I mentioned earlier, is at domsdickey.itch.io. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dominique. Again, I, I cannot express how grateful we are for, for working with you and for, you know, taking the time to uh, help our audience understand, you know, all of this. Thank you for having me. Campaign Skyjacks is a one-shot network production. For more information, be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at @campaignpod for updates about live shows and other events we might be doing. You can find more great gaming shows over at oneshotpodcast.com. Like The Broadswords. The Broadswords is an all-women D&D podcast focused on drama, roleplay, and subverting stereotypes. Join the Broads as they unravel the mysteries of the Snowy Rashomon, a land ruled by witches steeped in superstition. Berserkers reign, and spirits roam the frozen wastes. Yaleris, Kila, and Maypri all have their own reasons for journeying north, but soon they discover they have something in common. They are pawns in a divine plot. You can find the Broadswords on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Jonnet Kessler was played by Tyler Davis, who can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Tyler A. Dave. Gable was played by Liz Anderson, who can be found on Twitter at Liz Anderson underscore underscore underscore, or on her podcast, Paired. Travis Matigo was played by Johnny O'Mara, who can be found on Twitter at Johnny and Briefs, or on his podcast, Dilettante Ball. I am James D'Amato, your host and game master. You can find me on Twitter at OneShotRPG or on my other podcast, OneShot. The original music featured in this production was composed and performed by Arnie Parrott. You can find Arnie on Twitter at A-R-N-E-P-A-R-R-O-T-T. -T. And you can find more of his work at atptunes.com. This episode was edited by Casey Tony, who can be found on Twitter at Casey Pony, spelled C-A-S-E-Y. P-O-N-E-Y, or on his own podcast, Neoscum. Our logo was designed by Fiona Shea, who can be found on Twitter at Fiona Pup. The world of Sphere was inspired in part by the music of the Decemberists and the card game Illimat, property of Together Studios. The game used in this production is a modified version of the Genesis role-playing system that was created by a talented group of game designers who were fired by a private equity firm owning Fantasy Flight Games. There are no kings. Take flight, heroes.
strangers who've ever been kind And once for our friends ne'er to rise Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind Who know we can never deny The call of the sky 